0: Anyway, so hopefully for next week I'll catch up on slides. Um, anyway, Hebrews 8 is where we are going to be this morning. Hebrews 8. Um, I guess let's do this. Let's just, uh, I'll, I'll ask you all to read. And let's just, for right now, let's read the first six verses of chapter 8. Um, and then after you read those, I'll go ahead and just have a word of prayer, all right? So, Pastor, if you'd start that. Now the things which we have spoken, this is the psalm. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched in the man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, <coughs> that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount, but now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Thank you, Lord, for this part of your word, and we just pray that you'd help us this morning as we uh, look at this, that you'd help us to have the right understanding of it, and uh, again, really a better appreciation of the Lord Jesus. Uh, for who He is, and of course what He's done for us, and how much better it is than everything else. And Lord, it's in uh, His name that we pray and we ask this morning, you just help us to set aside distractions and uh, uh, just all the things that might be going on in our minds, our hearts this morning. Help us focus our hearts and minds on you and your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, Book of Hebrews, chapter eight is where we are now, obviously. Uh, and up to this point in the Book of Hebrews, and and really this introduction has to do with verse one. So, uh, up to this point in the Book of Hebrews, we've seen a number of things presented. Okay, um, and really the the first four chapters, remember, focus primarily on what? What was the first big? word, P word for the book of Hebrews, Christ's person, his superior person, dealing just specifically with who he is, all right? He's God, he's man, he's the perfect man, and he, and he alone is and was completely faithful to his mission, to the task that he was given, his, if you want to say, the will of God for him. And that's a big theme in the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus, of course, him fulfilling the Father's will, uh, but he and he alone was completely faithful in that. Then the writer of Hebrews transitions into uh, talking about, because of who he is, all right, he is qualified, and he only is qualified to do certain things, and the big emphasis of the book of Hebrews is presenting the Lord Jesus as our high priest, the great high priest, and far different than earthly priests that had gone before, right? And so uh, in doing that, there's four main uh, areas we could say that the writer of Hebrews touches on and argues for concerning Christ's priesthood that makes his priesthood superior to the Old Testament priesthood, or the Levitical priesthood, all right, the priests that were after the order of Aaron. And the first of those deals with his source, all right. In other words, his priesthood is a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek rather than after the order of Aaron or the Levitical priests, all right. Uh, it's interesting that it's, often, it's most often referred to as Levitical priesthood, whereas not all the Levites were priests, all right, they were all set apart for that service, the service of the tabernacle and so on, but only the specific family of Aaron and his sons could be the priests. All right? um, but then it moves along into what I'm calling the script of his priesthood, which is touched on, it's introduced in the verses you read, and then touched on in the rest of chapter 8, the seven verses that we have yet to read and that is dealing with the, the covenant that his priesthood is about, which is referred to as a new covenant. All right? And then uh, in chapter 9 primarily, it's, it's introduced here in chapter 8, and I'll get to that, uh, but it's, t- it's focused on more and in more detail in chapter 9, the sanctuary of Christ's priesthood. In other words, where he carried out his priestly activities. The Levitical priests, they carried out their duties where? In the tabernacle, originally, and then later the temple, but the same same setup, all right? One was just temporary, one was permanent, but, uh, but they, theirs was of an earthly service, and that's important to understand, all right? Christ is a whole different tabernacle, all right? And we'll get to that. And then the sacrifice, obviously, one of the big, I mean, the big thing, and probably it's probably the most often, or the thing that we think of most often when we think of Uh, you know, things to do with the Old Testament law and the the service and so on, and that is the sacrifices, all right? I mean, there were multitudes of sacrifices for multitudes of different reasons and purposes, and and each one had just one specific purpose for it, and, you know, all the little steps had to be fulfilled for that to be effective and, and all of that, all right? But the book of Hebrews presents the one sacrifice that Christ offered one time and once for all as being superior to all of those things. Now, all four of those elements are important, and they're all four talked about in the six verses that you all read here this morning, all right? So uh, I'm still sticking with my outline that chapter 8 is about the script, the superior script of the Lord Jesus, but you'll see how this leads into that, all right? Verse 1 that was read, now it begins by saying, now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum, all right? Uh, This is uh, uh, talking here about, uh, well, the idea is he's, he's, he's making a statement that's saying of all the stuff we've been talking about, this is the sum of it. And there's a couple different ways you can take this, all right, or the, the, the word that's translated some, all right, it, it, it can be the idea of a brief statement concerning some topic or subject. In other words, the main point, the main thing. So he could be saying, of all the stuff that we've been addressing and talking about here in Hebrews, this is the main thing. And then if that's the case, that would seem that it's about to be said, what he's calling the main thing is about to be said. The other way it can be taken, because the word has really two sides of meaning, is, uh, and, and, and this, this meaning is used more in the sense of a monetary idea, but the sum as in it's the collective total of all that we have, Right. And, and actually it can be both. Uh, I, I personally tend to think that it's, re, it's really following more the second idea, but not in a monetary sense as such, but the idea, this is, this is if you add it all up, this is what we have, that's what he's saying, all right? Um, but you could think of it this way, even if you wanna use the, the monetary uh, illustration of it, okay? And I, I think that fits with the context here, this is the idea what he's saying is this is these are these are and you have to put it plural in English to make sense. These are our assets. This is what we have. And it's, it's kind of like in some ways it's like the writer of Hebrews. Remember, he's comparing Christ and all he is and what he does, what he has done with all of that Old Testament system. All right. And showing that it's better. It's kind of like, you know. I don't know if it's exactly the same way with girls. So ladies, just indulge me if it's not. But anyway, maybe it's your mother in this case. I don't know. But with 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 guys, when when you're a boy, everybody here remembers this probably. But when you're a boy, you you know, boys, they compare things with each other in the sense. Well, and and a lot of times it has to do with their dads and it's like, well, my dad can do this. My dad can do that my dad does this yesterday afternoon when uh tim and joel and i were working some on their back porch joel makes this statement which just kind of tickled me but he's like my dad's taller than you he's talking to me and he says my dad's taller than you (laughs) i'm thinking Number one, okay. So what if that's the case? But, number, and I got to thinking about that this morning, Tim. I think it was when you were on that ladder, and I was standing on the deck. So I mean, yeah, he's six feet taller than me at that point, you know. And, uh, it, but it's like it just. I thought about that this morning in thinking about this passage because you know, I mean, that's that's typical boys. You guys remember that, all right? I mean, but it's almost like the writer of Hebrews is saying, you know what? The Jews, and and the writer Hebrews was obviously a Jew himself, okay? So it's not like he's belittling the Jews. And everything in the Old Testament system was legitimate for its context, okay? But the point is, as we saw in chapter 7, God has given something better. It's And the priesthood, he says there in verse 12 of chapter 7, has been changed. The law has been changed. Why? Because the better... Thing, if I can say it that way has come and it's been fulfilled there's no more need for it so it's almost like the writer of Hebrews is saying here ha, we have a better high priest that kind of idea that's what struck me this morning in thinking about this this statement here of the now of the things which we have spoken this is the sum and then notice that next phrase we have such an high priest all right um so Again, I, I think the idea is we have co- contrasts with what, a, you know, they have is the idea. All right? And I, I want to read this paragraph. This is from William McDonald in the Believer's Bible Commentary. I, I, I like this statement, so I thought it would just better to read what he has here. All right? He says this, we have such a high priest. This is a triumphant note in the words, we have. There are... They are an answer to those Jewish people who taunted early Christians with the words, we have the tabernacle, we have the priesthood, we have the offerings, we have the ceremonies, we have the temple, we have the beautiful priestly garments. The believer's confident answer is yes, you have the shadows, we have the fulfillment. You have the ceremonies, but we have Christ. You have the pictures, but we have the person." And our high priest is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. No other high priest ever sat down in recognition of a finished work, and none had ever held such a place of honor and power. I like that statement. I think it summarizes well that. Because when you think about this, notice, notice what he's saying. Now, of the things which we have spoken, all right, so all the things that he's been writing about in the book of Hebrews, He's saying, of all these things that we've spoken, this is the sum. It could be the sense of, okay, I'm, I'm about to give you, and if, it's the, if this is the case, it would be what all these six verses say together, okay, that this is, this is the main point of everything I've been trying to say. It could be that. Or it could be the sense of, if you, if you gather it all together, everything we've been trying to say, all right, this is the total of it, which is in, very similar in, in ideas, okay, But this is what it's about. It's we have a high priest who is set down, who is is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And he's a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. "...for if he were on earth, he should not be a a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve under the example and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. But now hath he obtained, our high priest is the he here, hath obtained a more excellent ministry." by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. And then the next seven verses go into uh, elaborating a little more on that better covenant, okay? So we'll get to those, but let's just rehash these six verses here. You read them, I just read them. But notice how it summarizes all the four main points, if you want to say. And this... uh, I mean, the structure of the book of Hebrews, as I've mentioned this somewhat before, is not necessarily like, okay, there's, there's arguments that he's presenting, and it's not necessarily like he, he gives a, a one, like it's a, a continual progressive line of thought. He, one, and then he moves on to two, and then three, and then four as such the 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 way his his style of arguing here is more it is progressive but it's like he's going like this as he's going he's re you know he introduces an idea and then he'll move on and then he'll come back and recycle that idea and explain it more and then he moves on he'll bring something else in the picture and just just mentioning it and saying it's you know part of this, and then later he'll he'll revisit it and you know rehash more about it, and that's that's what it seems that the writer of Hebrews does. And all four of these main ideas are are brought out in these six verses, but they're not all elaborated on. All right, they're elaborated on in be, in different parts of the book of Hebrews. All right, so consider again his source and. In verse 1, all right, we have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. All right, up through, again, chapter 7 in the book of Hebrews, all right, you could say all of that is about the person of the Lord Jesus. Even as it brought into his, the, the argument for his priesthood, it's still focusing on he's a better priest because of him, because of where he comes from, his line of priesthood. Uh, who he is, all right? It's, it's not focusing on what he did as such yet but, and, and what he carried on, but it's focusing on him, all right? And Christ is a better priest than Aaron because he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And there were like four main thoughts in chapter seven that uh, the writer brings out there. One, he's, he has an unchangeable priesthood. Uh, he's demonstrated as being superior because Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek, and because Levi and later Aaron were in Abraham, therefore they were at least vicariously giving tithes as well, demonstrating that they were submissive to less than, if you want to say, because the, the you know, they, and then he makes the statement in chapter, in verse 7 of chapter 7, that Without contradiction the less is blessed of the better. Abraham gave tithes and Melchizedek pronounced a blessing upon Abraham. And you can see that. I mean, and, and 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 in the Old Testament, okay, when it you know, that was something you see like Jacob blessed his sons. He pronounced certain blessings. Some of those were prophetical things of what would happen with their their tribes and so on. Um, and it doesn't mean that Jacob in his person was better than all of those other persons, but he had a position that was superior to them, all right? So the position that Melchizedek had was superior to the others because of the things that were demonstrated. He received tithes of them. He's the one that did the blessing and not Abraham to him. And up to that point in the book of Genesis or in that context, historical context in Genesis, I think you could argue that Abraham was God's man. He was the one that God was dealing with, which, by the way, just to insert this, is one of the reasons why I don't believe Melchizedek was merely a historical human, all right? I mean, it just makes no sense that Abraham's the focus here of God's attention, and then all of a sudden it just says, Melchizedek, he's this priest of the Most High God, Uh, out of the blue? Well, again, I, I believe he was the Lord visiting Abraham. All right, in a, in a in a what they call pre-incarnate form, he he obviously was in the form of a man, but and and was called Melchizedek and things that were uh, said about him. Here, all right, but all of this up through here, all right. And let me just get on track here. Chapter eight, we got to get into this, all right. But because of who he is and and so on, you see this his source, all right. He we have such a high priest, and because of who he is, all right. He it doesn't say it this way, but this is kind of what's implied, and it'll be, it'll be talked about a lot more in the book of Hebrews. But he did what he had to do, and then he sat down. Remember chapter 1 of Hebrews, uh, verse 2, I think it is, says there that he by himself purged our sins, and then it says, and sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, why? Because... He did what he came to do. It was done. He didn't have to keep doing it. Now, the comparison there between the Old Testament priests and what the writer Hebrews is portraying about Christ and his priesthood is they were never done. They were never done. They had to redo the same things all the time. They had daily things, they had yearly things, but it, there was always a repetition because there was no fulfillment in what they were doing. What they were doing was merely a picture of what was to come, and it was what they had to continually do in order to keep portraying that and having a way that God would co- you know, cover their iniquities Temporarily, and I'll I'll return to that thought a little later here. All right, but his source. All right, so who he is? He's the only one that can be said that not only did he sat down, but where he sat down. No priest of Aaron's order ever would ever dare go sit beside, if you want to say, God the Father at His throne. And we've mentioned this last year when we were looking at some of the Psalms. I mean, uh, I'm trying to remember which Psalm it was. It would be Psalm 110, which refers to Melchizedek. But there it says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, at my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. Right? So he has an invited position. He's, he has a, he's there because of who he is and, and his qualifications and so on. And no priest after Aaron's family ever could attempt that. Right? Only Christ. All right. And again, this is just it's it's just emphasizing how much greater he is than these earthly priests. All right. The priests after the order of Aaron, his source here. All right. And then verse two, uh, notice as he moves into the he says, he not only is he this great priest so much so great that he has the right to sit at God's right hand, but he's the minister of of the sanctuary and of the, notice how it says, the true tabernacle. And in the original language, it's really emphatic. It's the idea of the, the tabernacle, the true one. I mean, it's just really, it, this is, there's a difference between the tabernacle that L- Levi's descendants served in and what Melchizedek serves in. His tabernacle is called the true tabernacle. Now, again, was the tabernacle that Moses oversaw, uh, the, the, you know, the putting together, the construction of, and then the carrying out of, and, and then that was carried on after he was dead and so on, but was that a real tabernacle in the sense that it was it had a right to be there, uh, it was God-ordained and so on? Yeah. But there's a big difference between that and this tabernacle. This is the the true tabernacle, and then it says, Notice which the Lord pitched and not man. Then there's another reference down here in um, verse 5 uh, about the, uh, the, the idea of shadow, example, and so on, the pattern showed to the, thee. All right, so in other words, Moses. In constructing the the tabernacle in the wilderness, Moses was given specific instructions by God. In fact, I don't know how many times, but in the book of Exodus, he's up on the mount, right? And God reminds him more than once, at least, to, and again, I don't remember the exact number, but be sure that you follow this pattern exactly. So somehow or another, God communicated to Moses the specifics, all right, and Moses was to follow those. And those apparently were a kind of like showing a picture, I, I've, I've had several cases, in fact the other day in a house that was doing trim in, the owners wanted this. I would kind of call it weird but this design of trim on a wall it just kind of like a herringbone pattern of of two inch wide trim on a wall anyway and I was shown a picture on a phone this is what we want okay Uh, so anyway then then the contractor who I was doing it for he gave some more specifics about it okay and he's like okay this is the the pattern you got to follow but that's kind of the idea. He's, this is what you're to, you're you're to put there what this is. Alright? And that's kind of like what Moses, all right, and on the, the tabernacle in the wilderness. It was a representation of something else that existed that somehow or another he was shown. Do it like that. Alright? And then that is called the real. Or the true tabernacle. The one in the wilderness, it was a real tabernacle, and it was God ordained, but it was just it was just a temporary representation of something better that exists and is permanent. Alright? So his sanctuary, verse two, and then again, this this idea of his sanctuary, the true tabernacle, is picked up more in chapter nine and elaborated on more, all right? But this is the place of His ministry. And just several of the points that are quickly shown for us here in these verses is, number one, it's in the heavens, okay? Because in verse 1, where is our priest? He's in heaven, right? He's at the the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And then down in verse 4, notice it says, for if He were on earth... So again making a contrast here, his his tabernacle is not here on earth. It's in heaven, all right? So it's place, and then it's called the true tabernacle. We already, I can't talk, sorry. Already pointed that out in verse two, all right? He's a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. And then its builder is the Lord, not man, all right? And I'm gonna tell you what, that the tabernacle that was erected in the wilderness would have been quite a sight. I mean, quite a sight. And then Solomon's temple later, I mean, all the gold that was in it, I mean, probably one of the richest deposits of, of gold in the, all the world right there. There was a lot of gold in the tabernacle in the wilderness. There were a lot of other things as well. But I mean, this, this was something, but the point being is this is just it doesn't even compare, you could say, to the real one, to the true one. I mean, what magnificence uh, the real tabernacle has. And, you know, who constructed the tabernacle in the wilderness, all right? Moses was responsible for it. It was under his, his uh, you know, direction, you could say. But the Lord equipped certain men. There are two men specifically named and then others that helped, but... Men did that. Now they were divinely helped in doing so, but still they were mere men. But this tabernacle that's in heaven, the Bible says, God's the one that put it together. Superior, for sure. All right. So, and then, then in verses three through five, in this summation passage, if we could say this main thesis here uh, is. Really, in 3 through 5, it alludes to his sacrifice. Right? And, and notice verse 3, For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man, that's Christ, that's the great high priest in heaven, right? that this man have somewhat also to offer. Now, the interesting thing here is, his sacrifice is not explicitly stated here. It's just kind of hinted to that he does have, there's a sacrifice that he's made, okay? It's not talked about here. It's going to be talked about later, in in, in, somewhat in chapter 9 and then in chapter 10, all right? But his specific sacrifice isn't explicitly stated here, but it does say that he did have something to offer, and of course, he's offering it to God on behalf of man, because that's what a priest did, right? Notice... um, Verse 3, again, that he, it's of necessity, it's necessary, all right, that this man, this priest has something to offer, for if he were here on earth, he should not be a priest. This is interesting, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for, see, saith he, that thou maketh all That thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. So he did have something to offer, right? His gift, his offering, was not something that was directly expressed in the law. I believe that's the emphasis or the point of verse 4 with saying that if he were a priest here on earth, um, uh boy, I lost my place. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest. In other words, What he offered wasn't expressed in the Levitical law. He offered himself. All right? What the the book of Leviticus, I mean, referred to in Exodus and Numbers and so on as well, but what the book of of Leviticus expressly states as offerings, they were all animals. All right? There was no human sacrifice. And by the way, that's one argument I've heard from some Jews about... (laughs) God would never accept a human sacrifice and all this, you know. Uh, But his sacrifice is something that was not expressed in the law, all right? So he's not a priest after the earthly fashion, all right? So his sacrifice. Um, And then notice as well, verse 5, that those things that were offered in the earthly tabernacle were mere shadows and the implication is they were they were shadows or pictures of what his sacrifice would be. They were just and and all those things, all those different ones, they all had, like we said, different specific purposes, different specific ways and and steps and so on that had to be just right. But all of those collectively picture, again the Lord Jesus and really they don't even still fully picture the Lord Jesus but they were just parts and pictures like a jigsaw puzzle I guess you could say a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle all right that piece it helps in portraying that picture but that's all it does it just helps in portraying that picture it's just part of the whole whole thing of that all right and then verse 5 also says that Moses was expressly told to follow to the T, right? The pattern that he was shown, which, which again is, is implied here uh, that it was a picture of the real situation that is in heaven, all right? So then moves on in verse six to introducing the idea of his script or his covenant, all right? So, but now hath he obtained, he of course is the Lord Jesus the high priest who is at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven he hath obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises all right so let's let me just talk about the things in this verse and then we'll move on to this new covenant all right but his script or the covenant by which he did what he did, he operated, you could say, he obtained an outstanding, a more excellent ministry. He is the mediator, which uh, the word mediator is the idea of a go-between, an advocate, uh, one who's, you could say it this way, one who's working out a disagreement between two parties so that they could be reconciled together. Um I guess maybe today a lot of people might use the word an arbitrator, all right? Somebody who is reconciling things between sides. Now, that's not the human idea of that is not a is not a full or perfect picture, right? Because m- probably all the time in human disagreements, all right, there's some fault at on the, both sides, all right? But in this case. All the fault lies on one side. Now, many people, they think all the fault lies on somebody else's side when there's a human disagreement. All right. I mean, that's our tendency. But in this case, it's, rea- it's reality that all the fault is on man's side and not on God's side. So when, when man and God, for that situation to be reconciled, all right, it's, it's man's faults and problems that have to be made right. God has never moved from where he was, and he's not going to move, all right? But he has made a way that man could be made right with him, and all of that, of course, is through Christ. And in some ways, this idea of the new covenant brings in the aspect of a lot of the legal arguments involved in salvation that, like the book of Romans presents, it's it. Romans look, talks about salvation, but it's from a whole different perspective than what Hebrews is primarily. But but they kind of overlap, particularly in this area that uh, Romans has a is explaining from a, in many ways from a legal standpoint how God forgives sinners, how God can justify sinners, and and the whole idea of justification is a legal it's a legal term that God declares a sinner to be righteous. And then he treats that one as righteous. It doesn't mean that that person in and of themselves is righteous, but he treats them that way. And then Romans argues that the reason he can do that is because Christ has done what's necessary to appease the wrath of God, to satisfy the wrath of God concerning man's sins. And because of Christ, God can do that. And I love that that passage in Romans 3, verse 24, 25, 26, the idea that God is... It can still be just, I'm paraphrasing it slightly here, but God is still just even when He justifies a sinner. He's not compromising anything, but the whole point is because Christ is the propitiation. Christ has done everything that's necessary. He's done everything that man could not do for himself. Christ has done it so that God is satisfied. And that's why God can save people, why God can forgive sin, because God is holy. He, I mean, every sin that's ever been committed, from Adam's sin till the last sin that's ever committed, whenever that is and whatever that is, every sin has to be dealt with somehow or another. There's nothing that, you know, God can just sweep under the rug. It all has to be dealt with somehow or another. And it's all dealt with in Christ as far as God's concerned. All right? And, and, and this pertains to this idea of this, this covenant here and what Christ has done. All right? So he's, let me mention this and then we'll take a few minutes here and specifically talk about the rest of the chapter. But he's obtained an outstanding, a most excellent ministry. He's the mediator, the advocate go between one working out a disagreement. All right? He's the mediator between God and man. Here. he's mediated a new covenant and if you remember in Matthew 26 for instance at the the night that uh, the passover was was observed uh, Jesus is uh, telling his his apostles there he when when he institutes what we call the Lord's Supper all right he says this covenant this is the the covenant uh now I can't the, the this is the blood of the new covenant, all right? In other words, he's, he's teaching them something here, and he introduces this idea of this covenant, all right? And in from what he's looking at there is, he's looking at it from the aspect of what most of the New Testament does, that the shedding of his blood and the offering of himself up is, it, is what is able, it's the basis of the new covenant. Hebrews is looking at it from the standpoint that he not only was that sacrifice and so on, but he was the priest that offered that sacrifice to God. That, that's amazing. I mean, The things in the next couple chapters of Hebrews are some deep things as far as things that are hard to humanly rationalize out, all right? I mean, it just is. But it's what God says about it, so therefore we should believe it, all right? In fact, we have to believe it. Hebrews 11 is going to say if we don't believe it, we're not right. All right. In other words, it's without faith, it's impossible to please God. All right. So God demands faith, and God's honest and upfront, up front enough to tell man that, you know, people, atheists and so on say, well, you just expect me to believe in God. God expects you to believe in Him. That's I mean, He and He tells you that in His Word. I mean, that's that's the point. You know, what do they want us to believe in? Random chance? Uh, you know, I mean. There's absolutely no basis for that. I mean, the only thing, you you take evolution, atheism, whatever, and just logically backtrack it, there's nothing. You take biblical faith and you logically backtrack it, it comes back to one thing, and that is God. And God says, you have to believe me. You have to believe in me and you have to believe my word. You have to take me at my word. That's what God expects. I mean, so you expect me to believe that some, some God created all. Well, I didn't say that. He said that. That's what he tells us in his word. Can we explain, uh, you know, then the question, where did God come from? Well, God didn't come from anywhere. He, he is. Anyway, but we have to accept that. We have to believe that. And it's reasonable because everything else that God says proves to be true. So it's reasonable to take him at his word. Anyway, it uh, says here also, verse 6, all right, but by, <laughs> excuse me, lost my place again, by how much also, I mean, the idea is it's just, it's, it's like a, piling on the idea that his. It's great. It's so much greater. It's so much more. It, it, it just goes beyond is the idea. It's as great as. It's a better covenant that's based on better promises. It's higher in rank, more prominent, more valuable, right? And it's established. Notice it says, which is established upon better promises. The word established there is the idea of it was made law. It was legislated. That's, that's the meaning of the word there. So in other words, it was made law, but upon better promises, the promises of God is the idea. All right, now, ah, we're about out of time. For the most part, the chapter, I mean, is everybody, and I don't know where you're at in this, so to speak, but there are a number of covenants talked about in the Bible, all right? Are you all familiar enough with those covenants and so on? Or, I mean, uh, there's, and there's different types of covenants for different reasons, okay? There are, in fact, there's two main basic types of covenants. Uh, one would be called an unconditional covenant. A couple examples of that, all right? In the Bible, uh, there's what, what has been termed by Bible students the Abrahamic covenant, all right? God... Made a covenant with Abraham. And some argue that it was conditional, all right, but the only condition in the covenant was fulfilled by Abraham because God said, You need to leave your country and I'm going to take you to a place that I'm going to show you and I'm going to do this. I'm going to bless you. You're going to have, you know, I'm going to give you a seed and so on. All right. Abraham did. What God initially told him to do. He left. It may have taken him a while to do it and to get, you know, but he did leave. Okay? But the point is, that's an unconditional covenant in that God said he was going to do certain things, and the rest of those things are not contingent upon anything that Abraham had to do. God was going to do it. Alright? And that, that's a, an unconditional covenant. Same thing, the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God made with David. It's recorded in 2 Samuel and then also in 1 Chronicles and referred to in a ver- number of psalms in various places, but uh, God promised David that he would have a seed, and there's two aspects of, da- of the covenant with David. One is that specifically that he would have a son, Solomon, who would sit on his throne after him, all right? And then God says pertaining to that, as long as they are faithful to me, that'll keep- continue to be the case. But then in the first Chronicles rendering of that covenant, there's a different focus. It's more the eternal aspect of that covenant through Christ. And the focus is not on Solomon as David's seed, but Christ as David's seed. And it's focusing. Both are true, okay? but there's a little difference in them as well. But they're both true, but, but that is an unconditional covenant that God made with David. Christ would come through David's line, which we know is true, all right, the genealogies, we talked about that some time back, uh, but the genealogies demonstrate that Christ is a son of David and that he's not of the corrupted line that God cursed in Jeconias, but He's through a different line from David, but it qualifies because he's a line of David. God didn't say that it had to be through that one line that Christ would come, all right? But uh, those, are, those are unconditional covenants, all right? The, the covenant that's referred to here would be what's called the Mosaic Covenant or the, the Sinaitic Covenant, the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. In fact, recently, uh, Pastor Brinker's been, was talking about that in the book of Exodus, all right? In chapter 19, I believe it is where God uses the phrase, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And then he lays out the law. Specifically, we have the 10 commandments given there, all right? Which I believe are a universal moral law for everybody. There's there's other aspects of law that gave that don't apply to everybody, all right? They were specifically for the Jewish people. In fact, there's there's Think of it this way, okay? Because I, I hear this argument from a lot of people as well when they, you know, and they say, well, if you believe the Bible, that means you think we should go around killing homosexuals. Anybody ever heard something like that? All right. Well, what's the difference? And they say, well, the Bible's, you know, and they go back to Leviticus, all right? It is true that under the Mosaic law, homosexuality was punishable by death. So was adultery. So was a lot of other things, okay? It wasn't just that, all right? But the difference is, those were given to, those are what you could call civil law. Those were laws that the nation of Israel were given and enacted, similar to how the United States has a civil code, right? We have laws that, are, that our government is in, responsible to enforce, all right? The difference for us is, the New Testament church is not a civil organization, All right, now there are some things that have claimed to be church and so on down through the ages. For instance, the Roman Catholic system, all right, they've been married to human government many times. And they've used human governments in places and times in history to enact their will. Christ's church is not that way, Christ's church is a spiritual organism. It's not a, a, a civil organism. We don't have right to enforce, uh, you know, physical punishment on somebody because they've disobeyed God. God's the one that will take care of that. Now, there is, you know, if you want to say discipline in a church and so on like that, but that's, that's, we're, not, we're not hanging people up and beating them, uh, you know. <laughs> 39 stripes for you, Brother John. Uh, I mean, you know. <laughs> Why? Well, because we don't have that authority. There is authority that God's given a church, but it's different than that. It's not a human government. Israel was, a, was in, way, in a way, a spiritual entity, yes, but it was a physical civil entity as well it was an actual nation that was to be governed by the laws that god gave them there's a difference in that and us i believe all men are responsible to god for the moral aspect of the law for the moral law that god said and the ten commandments by the way cover every aspect of morality that that man needs Um, jesus in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, Matthew 5 and that, he demonstrated that God's view of that moral law is far beyond what most men understand it to be. It involves the heart, not just mere actions, all right? But God's the one that takes care of the punitive measures of his law in that sense. We don't, all right? Uh, so I'm just trying to, there's a, there's a big difference in that, all right? And so part of the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant that God made with His people on Mount Sinai, involved them carrying out certain laws and so on, all right? But and here, in in Hebrews and and much of the New Testament, it's looked at in a generic way, just the law, all right? Just the principle of all of that is, is the idea. And it's shown here, in fact... We're probably just going to have to stop and then pick back up here. But notice the first idea you see here that's talked about with that old covenant, that covenant that God made with the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai, all right, he says it was a faulty, the writer of Hebrews argues that it was a faulty covenant. Now, that's an interesting thing to think about. And I'm going to leave you with this, all right? And then he makes comparison that the new covenant that's introduced here in Hebrews 8 is a faultless covenant, all right? So, between now and, and next Sunday, think about what that means, that the old covenant, big streak of lightning there, the old covenant was a faulty covenant. but that, Does that mean it wasn't any good, that? It was wrong, but it was a faulty covenant. Anyway, if you, if you uh, look up the words, what they mean, and all that, it helps under, uh, give understanding to what it's talking about here in this argument. We'll just leave it at that right now. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Help us to better appreciate and love the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.